Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. In 1609, Juan Rodriguez, a free man of African and European ancestry, came ashore on Manhattan Island with 80 hatchets and some knives to set himself up in trade with the local Indians. In coming years, he fought off Dutch rivals, married an Indian woman, started a family, and all the while prospered by trading in bear and beaver pelts. His is one of the many stories presented by David Hackett Fisher in his new book, African Founders, How Enslaved People Expanded American Ideals, which examines nine Afro-European regional cultures in North America. Following in the footsteps of his previous books, Albion Seed, Liberty and Freedom, and Champlain's Dream, In African Founders, Fisher seeks to determine how individuals, both free and enslaved within these nine cultures, acted with purpose and resolve to change the ways that free and open systems worked in what is now the United States. David Hackett Fisher is University Professor and Warren Professor of History Emeritus at Brandeis University. Author of numerous books, in addition to those already mentioned, his Washington's Crossing won the 2005 Pulitzer Prize in History. David Hackett Fisher, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks. A pleasure to be with you. So I wanted to uh, begin uh, discussing this massive labor of love uh, by talking about sort of structure and method um, in a good old school way. And I I thought we should connect this to sort of where you begin this long project, we should connect this to Albion's seed and the importance of regions, which you emphasized in 1989 with that with the publication of that book. And once again, you are hitting with two hammers, the importance of regional cultures. Could you explain why they're so important to you and why you think they should be important to other historians? Yes. Well, I think it may. The the short answer is that it it's something that came from to to me as a, a living and a coming of age in a border state in Maryland, uh, between North and South, and both the, the, these regions were very much a part of my life, and we recognized the deep reality of them, uh, and they were profoundly different one from another. And the differences multiplied through American history. And I think that's what helps us to be free, is this diversity of these many different cultures, both African and European. And in these cultures draw on various sources. We'll talk about founder effects in just a, in just a few minutes. Yes. But you present this as a series of inquiries into these nine regional cultures. So why why yes. inquiries? Yes. I think very much, uh, I think of myself as a, a student of the old school in history, the school of Herodotus, who gave us the word history in his, the title of his book. And what that book meant literally in Greek is the inquiries of Herodotus. People think history means story, but it didn't to Herodotus. It meant inquiries. And that's what he was about. And that's what I'm about. And that's what history's about. It's about asking questions, uh, questions about who we are, where we came from, where we're going. And it's about, uh, uh, it's a search for those answers. But Herodotus still had an argument. So I think that inquiries, people are going to think that you are just making some sort of value-free neutral observations, but you 
do have an argument. In fact, you define yourself at least once in the book that I noted as a Whig historian, an avowed yes. Whig historian, which is not many people do these days. Uh, and of course, Whig historians have arguments. Yes, I think all historians have, have arguments, but first we have questions. And the questions, the questions take a kind of priority in that process. Then after we get an answer, then we make an argument about what we found. And then that usually leads to questions and queries and doubts and confusions. And so we pose more questions and the process continues that way. That's the way knowledge grows, I think. What do you mean uh, by uh, by proclaiming yourself a Whig historian, or maybe these days a neo-Whig historian? I don't know how that works, but what is a Whig historian in 2022? Well, I think Whig historians generally meant historians who had some sense of history as a story of progress. And I think that that's my understanding, too. Though we also have a considerable abundance of, of of regress as well as progress, and so we have to we have to get it we have to get the balance, <laughs> uh, and uh, that's 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 what I'm that's what I'm looking for, but by and large, I'm I'm thinking about progress. <laughs> that's interesting because I, I I thought of you in the Whig historian is as uh, thinking also of of liberty and freedom. Yeah, as being a preoccupation of a Whig historian. Yes, well, I think that's true too, and I think my, my idea of progress includes some idea of both liberty and freedom. And it's interesting that we think of these words or use them as synonyms, but in some ways they're opposites. Uh, liberty means uh, the, uh, the uh, to to be released from bondage. Freedom means to be admitted to the rights of a city or of a state or of a nation. Uh, freedom is about belonging. Liberty is about independence. And in that sense, though we think of liberty and freedom as describing similar things, they are opposites in a sense. I think that's that's a curious fact. The, um, the book is based on massive research of a hundred years. Uh, that you've collected together your own observations and your own archival work, but you're very clear to include the many, 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 many hundreds, maybe even thousands of people who have made this possible. Um, yes. And one of the very interesting things, um, you were raised in uh, very much in the, at the heart of social history. As, as, as a as a historian and, and one of the amazing things that even since the late 80s is the databases that are now available to do social history on African the enslaved Africans being brought to the Americas are just they're just yeah. incredible could you touch on some of those yeah. uh, those sources well let me say, take it step one step backward before then say I started in, in the 1950s uh, as a political historian. And then after that, I grew into expanded into social history, and then social history is, has expanded into cultural history. And who knows what cultural history will expand into? But something even larger than that, probably, in years to come. So the, the inquiries keep 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 uh, uh, getting bigger and and and, and bigger. Uh, oh, inquiry is always uh, part of it, but each inquiry is usually is it, it, it begins with a discovery. It 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 grows from from something we've learned, and then that poses a question about something we don't know, uh, and then the process continues. Very much a, 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 a continued. Uh, it, 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 uh, it's a it's a story without an end that way. Mm -hmm. One of your inquiries is actually going to, to visiting Africa. The, you uh, cite Francis Parkman on the importance of going there. So yes, how did that was the that was the first rule. The first rule was go there. The second rule was do it, <laughs> and not not until you've done that should you go to the third step, which is to write it. <laughs> and so I've always tried to, to do something like that. Always uh, trying to get out and, and about. That goes all the way back to Herodotus. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes as far forward as I could see for historians, young historians coming on the scene today. People are still 
uh, going there and doing it and so then what, writing it. What were you, and, what were your, the, the, the so we'll, we'll touch on later on and some of the things that you, that you observed in Africa and how that sort of shaped your inquiries. But what were, what was, what was, what was the overall impact of you by going to Africa? What did that, how did that influence the found, the foundations of the book? Let me take it one step further back and say, first of all, it began with other other inquiries about going to England and to, and to Europe, but uh, and to see that same diversity of people who came to different parts of America, and then after that, we began to look at these different parts and we observed Africans in in, in all these places, and the, the discovery that they came from different parts of Africa, and the diversity I think is key to all of this. It creates a a great range of experience and a, a, a variety of purposes uh, that help to open the whole process and becomes critically important to the way American history works. That's what makes us what we are today. So the book is divided into, um, as I said earlier, nine. there are nine regions that you're studying. Let me rattle them off. There are northern regions, New England, Hudson Valley, Delaware Valley, southern regions, yeah. Chesapeake, coastal Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. And then Louisiana. Yep. Uh, and then finally, three sort of lineups, as they would say in Louisiana, uh, <laughs> Western, Maritime, and Southern um, yes. frontiers. And we can't do the all of these. Cultures. Frontier yes. cultures. We can't do all these. I decided I would purposefully avoid ones I was familiar with. Uh, and I was I wanted to talk with you today about um, two, re, uh, two of these, uh, two the one northern region, one southern region, and two frontier regions. So I want to talk today about the Hudson Valley uh, and coastal Carolina, and then the western and maritime frontiers. So yeah. uh, some of these people recognize from Albion Seed, but some of them are new. Uh, yes. So how did these? How did you add to the, the list of Albion Seed? Well, I just was, I kept looking for a kind of um, pattern, I'm looking for patterns. And as I be began to put them together, more and more patterns appeared in other regions. And so it began to multiply that way. That's the way I did it. And uh, it wasn't as if I began with a single frame, but I started with sort of uh, core settlements, mm -hmm. the New England settlements, and then and so forth and so on. And then from that, I began to study the regional cultures. And after I got the regional cultures, which then went into the LBC, then I began to observe the, the, the differences in the Africans who were present in all of those regions and how they also had their own stories to tell of, of, diverse, of diverse origins and, and, and mixed histories. So let's talk about African origins. Um, yeah. The uh, what you've already alluded to that several times. What's the importance? And we're gonna we'll, we'll touch this. We'll we'll necessarily touch on this more with each region. But what's the importance of specific African origins of people being brought over in slave ships to the subsequent development of that regional culture? Yes. Well, let's take one. Take 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 an example. You said you worked with New York. I think you said, did you? With uh, the, 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 the with the these this began as a Dutch colony, yes. And they found because of the way the slave trade was working just at that moment uh, that their strongest connections were to uh, the southern parts of Africa, to to the Angola, and uh, in some degree to the Congo, but mostly to Angola. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I began to get interested. There was one place I wanted to go there. There was one place I couldn't go. Angola was in, convulsed yeah. in the Civil War. It was littered with landmines. And I could have gone there, but I'm not sure that I could have come back again. So we... <laughs> So but we for, uh, for the, we have the, the magnificent work of John Thornton on the uh, Kingdom of yeah. the Congo to but, assist um, us in in understanding every, you know everything about the Congo. Thornton yeah. seems to seems to know. But let me let me center it more on Angola than on the Congo because Angola sure. was the key yeah, here, yeah. I think, to what happened in in the Hudson Valley. The first was that these Africans who who were brought in, given the nature of the the, the connections that the Dutch had tended to come from that coast 
where they, they had access. So they came from the same area this of, of Africa. This is a huge territory from South Africa all the way up to to Senegal, and, and, and it's an enormous area, even even larger than the United States. And uh, they, uh, but they they had they shared much in common, which meant when they came to America, they could they could interact with each other, which they did. It meant that they began to uh, to form a kind of bondage with with other other African other Angolans. And so, so the, a culture began to form there, as a consequence. It wasn't as if they were all come from, coming from all over the place. They they they, they brought something in common right. with them, and that happened. There was some element like that everywhere. There were mixtures and mergers, but always there were some of these 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 elements of things in common. So there, uh, for example, um, this is this is what you refer to as a founder effect. Yes. Um, so what's the so that the the initial group of people coming over has an almost uh, disproportionate influence on the culture that comes that they sh- they shape the culture they get sort of the they get a, a disproportionate influence on what occurs afterwards. Yes, and it was let me then take a step back on my side that this was it was a collision of two groups. One were the Dutch, who who very much controlled uh, uh, the Hudson Valley at the start. And uh, these were very; these were commercial people. They uh, they sh- shared they shared a religion in common. They sh- shared a a, 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 a a material world in in common, and they worked very closely with with one another. So they were closely bonded. And then in come these Angolans who also share things in 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 common. And the Angolans from the very beginning, I think this was the case everywhere began to strive against their own bondage. They were looking for ways of enlarging some life beyond bondage for them for themselves. And they began to go to work on that, working with their Dutch their 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 their, their Dutch uh, masters. And they were very perceptive about it. they discovered that they could make they could try to bargain with their masters. And they learned ways of doing that, of gaining some openings, uh, in, in, in which they which they began to do. And I tell that story in that chapter in in some in some detail. And they began to pry open the possibilities of living a little freer, though they were still in bondage at the time. Working at that, and, and they made it in the interest of the Dutch to 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 do that. Uh, they saw that the Dutch were the Dutch were mainly interested in making money from all of this. And they showed the Dutch how by coming, getting getting some advantages, they could make they could do better that way. That they were very clever about that, and I, I describe that in many details. So, so. yes, you talk about the the importance of what you, the freedom petitions. Yes, um, could you describe how they they quickly found out the Dutch habit of using petitions yes, as right. an instrument of of a, a bottom up political force in the Netherlands, yes. and then. As is so often the, the case, y- you see these enslaved people or these the the few the free colored people there. They quickly learn the political tactics of this white culture and they begin to use them exactly. And they were very skillful at that. And what they did was they 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 were able to get their petitions. I think they were probably these were probably uh, African seamen on on Dutch ships uh, uh, trading uh, uh, across. Uh, uh, to the Netherlands, they were able to 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 use that process as a way of getting their petitions uh, to pry open the possibilities. Always uh, in, in inviting the Dutch to think about the fact that they could enter into some deals with the with their slaves and make more money by it. And so they began to work out deals of becoming sort of half free. If you remember all of that mm-hmm. in that chapter, it's quite amazing mm-hmm. the way they did that. And these were Angolans, these very hard-headed Dutch traders um, in, in, engaged in bargaining with them over bondage to persuade the Dutch that they could make more money by opening some possibilities for choice for these, for these slaves. And they did that. So by 16, 1664, 1665, when the English take over yeah. the 
the New Netherlands colony, yeah. these cultural patterns are already established. That's right. And yeah. dynamics, enslaved uh, people say more dynamic and dynamics were established. Yeah. And they so the enslaved and free people of color continue to use these dynamics in their favor. Yes. And they continue on. What's um you refer to the importance of associationism in the Hudson Valley. Uh, this is a, a very uh, a Tocquevillian point, but it, it would almost seem that it's these it's the enslaved and the free people of color in the Hudson Valley yes. that form associations even before whites. Yes, and they were they they were very clever about how they were able to 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 build these uh, build be able to build that sense of association amongst themselves, working working to organize. So they they were able to make common cause that way. Very clever. Mm-hmm. Well, they see them. You can see them always, even as they were in chains. These people were taking initiative in the process of of of, of, of enlarging their 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 condition. Amazing, mm-hmm. really. What's what sort of associations did they form as the as the in in through through the whole course of the 18th century? What were they? What were these associations for? Well, they were mostly, I think, to get 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 these Africans working together in a kind of common a, a common effort, and uh, so some of them would be religious groups. Uh, there would there be other other groups as well, social groups, uh, but uh, there would be families that would begin to form slowly, very very painfully. Uh, many sorts of these people coming over almost in an individual bondage. And they're beginning to rebuild sets of connections amongst themselves that would lead to families and to and, and to associations of, of that sort. And as they did, and they then they got more they, they got more leverage on that whole on that on that whole process. And all the way along, they were promising, they were holding out the possibility that by making some openings for them, that the Dutch would also increase their returns on slavery. So they were they were they were they were bargaining with their with their with their masters, without ever without without ever uh, uh, backing away from their for their goal of enlarging their own autonomy and and so forth. Amazing what they did. Just to close this out, you point out that um, that in the Hudson Valley, uh, it's where uh, black people first start to refer to themselves as African or African American. Yeah. Which is—it's amazing how early yes, that it, is. That's right, and, that, and there was a sense of solidarity with that with that identity, mm-hmm. uh, as they as they. I think it. Yeah, because there's so many different people from across yeah, Africa, right. and and to, to create this solidarity and association yeah. by by as early as 1782. Yeah. Or even long before that, that they're beginning to have a sense yes. of African, of an African solidarity mm-hmm. amongst themselves. Yeah. That's. And so you find uh, you find related words: Afro American by 1788, Black American by 1818, Afro American by 1830, and then 1831 Afric American, yeah. yeah. uh, used by people who are opposing colonization. Yeah. So yeah. another, as they are and after that we can get, get, and then, then after that comes Irish American, German American, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually yeah. that comes first. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they were the drivers. <laughs> That's amazing, don't you think? It is. A, it is. It is absolutely amazing. Yeah, incredibly. Yeah, how creative people can be when they're in chains. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's. 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 Um. It's. It's. It is extraordinary. Um, let's go to a very different place, uh, which also didn't appear in Albion Seed, and I'm sure that many South Carolinians have expressed their rage to you over the decades that they, they weren't considered a, 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 a hearth of, <laughs> of American culture, but uh, it would be coastal Carolina and Georgia and, and Florida. Um, so the origins, um, it, you know, I, you meet nice South Carolinian people and they uh, often, they say, well, you know, my people come from Barbados yeah. or, or they'll say they'll point across the room and say that you know their family comes they descend from Barbados. Yeah. People have questioned the importance of that, uh, but you do not, and it's actually it, it, you make an extremely important case for why these Barbadian origins 
in a way, make South Carolina a sort of mainland Caribbean yeah, island. Yeah, something like that. It really was. Uh, and uh, it became so. There's this was low country Carolina. Uh, and uh, there were, the climate was in some ways uh, uh, closer to the to the to the to the Bahamas at least uh, than it was to New England for sure, mm-hmm. uh, and and then they uh, then they began to uh, to, be, to 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 build on uh, to build on that, but the, then at the same time the and, and, and then the Africans arrived, and mm-hmm. uh, they began be, uh, begin to seek ways of opening their own possibilities within slavery. As they did every every other place, but never twice in the same way. So, so it's interesting to see that again the diversity, uh, regional diversity through the there was it was very different in in in, in South Carolina because the uh, this the, the proportion of the populations were so different. So there were areas in South Carolina where there were very few Europeans, uh, and yeah. the great majority of the population were, were African. Uh, that, well, the Sea Islands must have been eighty or ninety percent, yeah, African. or even more in some cases. Amazing, or even more yeah. in some cases, yeah. and uh, yeah. very different from other regions in America. Uh, they're very extreme. And they went, it went in some of those places almost to the far limit of that way, and uh, that made a big difference. And then it made a diff- difference as to how those those few um, Europeans could work would work with the Africans. Uh, and it also meant that the Africans increasingly were put in positions of having some control that they had to be to control these enormous numbers. Yeah. The, um, we'll get to that in a second. The, the Barbados connection is most clear um, in law. Yeah. Uh, in six, when the 1690 uh, slave code is, as you say, is the Barbadian slave yeah, code right, right, just copied yeah, down yeah. and applied to South Carolina. Yeah. And that happens again, I think 1695 is just an updated version of the Barbadian yeah. law. So we've got an absolutely draconian slave code yes. um, in which they, there's, a, there's the idea of absolute slaves. Yeah. But then we also get, in some way, the strongest sense of African identity in South Carolina. Yes. Which is very interesting. It's a very curious. It's a very curious thing, yeah. it, and you see that among the whites. Yes, you see this obsession with origins of where these enslaved have come from that you don't see amongst Chesapeake yeah. enslavers. But you see, South Carolinians are obsessed with the origins of of, of their slaves. Yes. and uh, they but and they were very conscious of, of, of that as well. And uh, but they also mm-hmm. uh, they identified these that that the the Gullah culture. Is a mm-hmm. is a corruption of Angola, in South Carolina, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and we can see some of these leakages uh, uh, there. And we can see that I mean, famously in the Stono Rebellion of uh, seventeen forty, yes. yeah. uh, we we see that this is sort of an Angolan rebellion yeah. amongst the enslaved, which you know, I was, uh, I I always I, I like the idea that they were carrying an image of the Virgin Mary. Because uh, nothing, yes. not, nothing. The only thing that can make a slave rebellion worse is is if they're catching for a South Carolina slave owners if they're c- carrying an image of the Virgin. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it, but yes, no novelist could invent this. <laughs> no, no, he could not. Uh, it's something out of Byzantine history, but amongst you know revolting slaves in South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just. But there was always that sense of striving amongst these Africans, wherever they were, they were strivers, just as the Europeans were. It's amazing to see that. And I'm, it's a, my book celebrates the striving of these Africans in, in America, as it celebrates the, the, the strivings of the Europeans as well. So. But we've got this curious dichotomy where we've got this, this sort of surveillance society uh, and after the Stoner Rebellion, we have both an increase in repressiveness. Yeah. Uh, the punishments that a, a, a enslaver is allowed to give to his property yeah. are extreme in South Carolina, as they are in Barbados yeah. or Jamaica. Yeah. Ex- and, and, they, and they give those punishments out. Yet at this one in the same time, the fact that you have 90 to 95% on, at least on the islands, uh, enslaved population means that you have to use Africans as community leaders. Yes. So th- right. there's a strange double-sidedness to Yes, this. right. 
And then these African um, uh, groups uh, on plantations begin to form their own uh, identities and cultures and, and, and societies, in a sense, amongst themselves, uh, even as they are so severely repressed by their, by their white masters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing story. Um, can we talk... Yeah. Can we talk about low country slavery as an economic system? Because it's very different. What develops there is very different than what happens in the Chesapeake. Yeah. Well, it was, it was, a, it was, they were, they were, it was a, a much different environment for one, very, very dangerous for, for Europeans. So there were very few Europeans that could, that would, would stay there through the summer and uh, out in, in, anywhere near those, those plantations. And so these Africans with just a few, uh, a few uh, uh, overseers would be, would, would, would be, would be the, 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 the only people there uh, and, uh, and, 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 and shaping their own, uh, their own world as a consequence in some, in some sense, shaping their religion, uh, shaping uh, the, their, their music, uh, which was so rich in South Carolina, just just blew the minds of people who went to South Carolina and began to hear them uh, with their music and the, the soul music of, 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 the, of the slaves in that region, uh, and, which was an expression of a, of, a, of a cultural world of incredible strength. And, so is, is that is that sort of the remoteness of white overseers or of direct white supervision during the summer season? Is that why they have a piecework system? Yeah. Do you think rather than a, a sort of time system? Well, I think they, I, yeah, yeah, yes, more or less. I think I mean it varied, but uh, they were always struggling to find ways of of hanging on when there were so few whites uh, to make the to make the to to, to make it happen, and that's. That's what they were. That's what they were trying to do. The um, could you basically you've used the term Gullah, and of course we should use the term Geechee. So could you just touch on briefly the sort of the uh, the speechways of that develop there on the the Sea Islands along the Florida, the the, the Carolina and Georgia coast? Well, I, I don't know that I can say all that very much about it because it's not native to me. But uh, yeah, but it's a it's an extraordinary language and a, and a depth with a depth of culture and expression as well. That that I think it's most accessible to us on the outside through its music and such. But uh, mm-hmm. the, the 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 richness of that culture is just just amazing to me. At least it's it, it, and I I I've always uh, enjoyed learning more and steeping myself in it. But always from the outside. So the- yeah. These are not languages that uh, these are, are are these these are synthetic languages that are formed by multiple African languages yeah, coming I mean, together along with English. Yeah, I think it was uh, it was mostly uh, it got to be I would have to say I think it was mostly English, um, but it was uh-huh. English with uh, with, uh, with 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 a powerful difference, and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 a, and a creativity that beyond imagining. Yeah, so yeah. your friend Charles Joyner noted the ways in which uh, whites, Charleston whites and others from Georgetown, South Carolina, would also themselves language switch. Yes. Based on early yeah. childhood exposure, they would speak low country aristocratic, but then they could then just w- just quickly switch without even thinking about it into Gullah or Geechee. Yes. And, and they, when they would, the South Carolinians would come north. To the to the constitutional convention or whatever, and they would suddenly talk like Africans <laughs> to the ears of a to a New England ear. They were really quite shocked by by all all, all of yeah. that. And I, I think the, by the different cultures that that formed. One of the great tasks of all of these people in all of these regions is keeping family, creating families, and keeping them together. Yeah. Um, and one of the, I think, most misunderstood things is how immensely successful they were in doing that very against tremendous odds. Yes, very much. They, they, uh, they were mostly responsible. They, all, all throughout the American South, the slaves were mostly responsible for raising other slaves. Uh, and so, they, and so, and, and so, the, so the families grew. Uh, and... Uh, 
and 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 their families were broken, but they were strong, uh, and it was that 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 sad uh, combination uh, that was the source of great suffering for these people, uh, and, and they suffered much uh, by the, the the way their their their, their families they, they were formed, but then they were pulled apart and so forth and so it was a great agony and a, and a sadness for that which they over they they tried to deal with in their in their religion in their music um uh, uh clinging to the hope of the next life and uh and mm-hmm. and, and um uh, that, that i think uh, it gave a kind of depth to their culture and, and to and, and to their to their lives uh, that, they created that for themselves, yeah. And it's one of the great creations of American culture in this country. Yes, yes. And and they do that in point of fact. I yeah. mean, it, you can see this in story after story from 1865 of yeah. you know, like the best known example would be Booker T. Washington, his mother gets her children after emancip- after the Lee is surrendered, emancipations come to Virginia, gets her children, and goes takes them over the mountains into deep into West Virginia to find her husband. Um, So, and this is repeated. Thousands of people are doing that. Tens of thousands of people are doing that throughout the South. Yeah. Struggling to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the, yeah. What is, uh, and I, and you discuss finally for the Gullah, the, the death ways, the funerals as the ultimate for them, the bringing together of, kin in ways that have been severed in life now they're they rest in peace together in death yes yes and these these communities have great and the congregations had great strength in that culture it was interesting to see how they they built that strength and then had to keep rebuilding it uh and, and with the, the stresses that were they that surrounded that yeah well let's talk uh let's talk about frontiers um, briefly about Western frontiers, um, I've t- we've talked about cattle drives in episode 101 on this podcast, and uh, we probably talked about Spanish contributions to the cattle drive. I know I talked about up country, back country Carolina yeah. contributions to the cattle drive, yeah. uh, the, the overlooked back country Carolina contributions. But you, uh, this should be dead, should have been dead obvious, but I don't know why this didn't occur to me until more recently, is that they're extraordinary rich African tradition of working with cattle. Yes. Um, all agriculture leads to a different kind of culture. Yes. Wheat farmers have to be different than tobacco farmers, have to be different than rice farmers. Yeah. Uh, all those cultures are different. Plants and animals require different things of different people. So there are African cattle cultures. Yes, and they rebuilt themselves. They reinvented themselves in a different environment. The different settings, it's absolutely astounding how they were able to do that. But they preserved that sense of African identity, even as they did that, and uh, but in different ways. Uh, yeah. So yeah, so so people have started to have in the last fifty years rediscovered the black cowboy, yeah. uh, or or. <laughs> yeah. But it turns out the black cowboy is based on very ancient folkways. Yeah, and uh, and that we the, the Hollywood. Uh, and, and whitened the cowboys, right? And uh, it took us yeah. a while to get to get past that, but now we're we're learning about how how many of these uh, of these uh, of these African uh, cattle people there were, yeah, and uh, how how much they derived from African origins and kept that going and kept their identity growing, and, uh, and with all, always this- that sense of of striving and of of, of sharing and. Of, of, of preserving some sense of humanity for themselves uh, in these uh, in, 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 the, in the in the in the face of bondage of slavery. Yeah. So, and you make this connection: the Fulani of Gambia, yeah. as they're brought to South Carolina, they turn out to be involved in the backcountry <laughs> raising of cattle and herding right. of cattle on foot <laughs> into to the coast. And I forget. I mean, it's the cattle trade in in Carolina is quite quite important. I mean, in terms of volume, if not in, in profit. Yeah. Um, and then as, as Western migration happens, these people are, the, these people are often the ones that turn out to be cowboys. Yeah. 
<laughs> Not too surprising. Yes, that's right. And uh, but now we can rediscover that. And what a joy it is to find that and to see how, how creative they were in doing that. And these are, I mean, this is a, these are, these are, we think of nothing as more American than a cowboy. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, but they, these were yeah. African-American cowboys, but they were very African. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's terrific. It is. It is. Yeah. Let's t- let's talk about finally with the another region, the maritime frontier. And what I love about this frontier is, of course, it. Um, well, this is uh, you. You start with a quote from uh, David Chachelsky's wonderful book on slavery and merit. The Waterman song, "Slavery in Maritime North Carolina." Uh, slavery always frayed at the sea's edge. Um, and in fact, the, the picture that I'm going to use for this episode is, uh, is Latrobe's yeah. famous, well, famous to us, watercolor of, of, of four or five black men pulling a bateau up the James River. Yeah. Um, and as I always say to students, where are the white people? <laughs> and there are none. Yeah. So even the James River was a, a, a momentary cessation of white surveillance. Yeah. Okay, Latrobe is watching from somewhere, but those guys were working together without a white overseer. Right. So that the water's edge, beca- the, and certainly the sea's edge, becomes yeah. a place where slavery becomes ambivalent. Yeah, and that, that, it's another thing which they are, again, prying open some possibilities for living more humanely in the, in, while, they're, while they're enslaved. And they're doing this uh, in the mar- in, in maritime occupations, uh, and they did that up and down the coast. Uh, I I was conscious, though. I uh, this again came much out of my experience in Maryland, where there were lots of maritime yeah. Africans in up and down the bay, and that culture was very strong and very rich uh, in, in 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 on the eastern shore. Which was there was an area of uh, some of my uncles, my more distant cousins come from an area that H.L. Mencken called Trans-Choptankia. It was south of the Choptank River, <laughs> which was more or less his equivalent to Lower Slobovia. <laughs> but yeah. in, 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 in that area, there were, there were maritime slaves who mastered the art of building skipjacks in Chesapeake law canoes. Uh, and Well, you... The, you point out that log canoes, which I always thought of, must be some sort of relation to sort of the Powhatan tribes or the Susquehannock sort of log dugouts, yeah. owe certainly as much to coastal craft yeah. of of Africa. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and become become very important in in the in the life of the Chesapeake Bay. These were these were, these were very creative. Uh, inventions, the, these skipjacks and so forth. And I think they had a hand in that. And we can see their, their resemblances to African vessels uh, when we go back and, and, and look at that. So I think they had a major presence in the design of these vessels. We, there, the history of it had mostly been centering on white shipwrights, maybe with the Indians. But there was a third mm-hmm. party in that, which were these Africans, these maritime Africans mm-hmm. uh, who were who had a, had a strong press, and we can see that. If then we go back and look at maritime Africa, and we can see some of those resemblances in these, in these, uh, which I try to try to do a little bit there. So, and and the Chesapeake Bay. I mean, I mean, as a proud Baltimorean, you're going. Of course, you'd say this, but it is a cradle of maritime invention yeah. in the 19th century. We've got the Clipper yes, ship right. coming out of the Chesapeake Bay. Yeah. So these these extreme, we would now call them hydrodynamically perfect designs. Are coming out of this ferment of mul- yeah. of multicultural well, they go, they go creativity. Back to the log canoes. That's where those. Uh, that's where they came. That's they, they, what they came from. The the uh, from the log canoes to the to the topsail schooners, and then to mm-hmm. the clipper ships. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. The first of the first of full clipper ship was in was uh, 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 was launched in Baltimore. The Anne McKim. And it was based on these other these this this long line of descent, of which Africans were one part. I don't mean to say it came all from Africa, but there was an African element in it. Uh, and the Africans were, were not were there as uh, not merely as, uh, as unskilled laborers, but they were contributing to the design of these Chesapeake log canoes that then and the skipjacks that then go on to these other to these other this, this one of the great traditions in American uh, maritime history is the, is the emergence of the American clipper ship in that process. 
That's partly an African story. Partly, not wholly, but partly. Yeah. And these shipbuilders yeah. get a, who are African-American, uh, they get both, well, particularly the free, the free ones become, as it were, they become respected for their capacities in this art. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and I think, I think that's, uh, we can see that they, the, the strength that they gather from these, from these, uh, the, these material inventions becomes a source of spiritual strength. Uh, to the people who possess them. How do you mean? Uh, well, that they from as they begin to uh, uh, to uh, they in, they invent a, a a better sort of of of, sa- of sailing canoe, uh, and from that uh, grows a sense of mastery and of control of the environment, if not of one's own freedom, and so forth, so on. And it grows from there, so it expands their consciousness. Mm-hmm. You refer to the maritime nurseries of African American leaders. Uh, what do you mean by that? Uh, say that again. You refer to uh, maritime nurseries of African American leaders. Yes. Well, I think that these ships allowed they say aboard skilled people they could rise uh, in, in 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 their responsibilities. And in, and in their degree of control and freedom within slavery in, in, on, these, on these vessels in the Chesapeake Bay. And that's, I think that's what they did. They did it in the shipyards as well. They became masters of these various skills. Uh, and their mastery became a source of, of, uh, of leverage over their, over the, in some degree, over their bondage. I think that happened. And then even more so as they went to sea, yeah. the farther away from shore, the more that these lines of of racial segregation would blur yeah. when you're out on so the deep Most of this was not blue. so much the, 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 the going to going to the onto the ocean. They were this was uh, this was coastal. Uh, this was mm-hmm. a, this was a coastal environment. So they're working mm-hmm. back and forth that way, and I think that's uh, that was a, that was a source of strength to them. They they. They were, they were working within the bay, and were able to pry open possibilities for themselves. Yeah. Let, I'd like to conclude by the you, you describe at the end of the book and the conclusion four African gifts. Um, they are language and speech, music, spirit and soul, and ethics and freedom. Now, three of those might seem eh, okay, but how is it that the African, there's an African gift of ethics and freedom when the people who are doing this are enslaved, are in bondage. Well, what they did, I think, was to um, expand by their continued, they were continuously striving against their bondage. And as they, as they did that, they slowly, gradually began to enlarge freedom for other people. That is to say, they, they began to open possibilities of living free for themselves and for others, always striving against the limits of their, of their bondage. Uh, and uh, that, was a, that was a continuing process by which they, uh, they, uh, they, they extended the, the meaning of freedom itself, both into the, the, the people, they extended freedom to include more people and to ex- exclude more aspects of life in which people would be free. And they're constantly striving that way. Uh, and I think that, that striving was part of that, that process by which, it, by which this whole country has grown. They did that even in bondage. You, even when they were in, in chains, they were doing that. And uh, constantly striving by whatever they, means they had. And uh, amazing. They kept their spirit alive in, in bondage. So, You point out that in 1776, not only is Adam Smith publishing The Wealth of Nations and the, not only do we have the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, but Johann Friedrich Blumenbach in the dissertation at the Göttingen published The Natural Variety of Humanity, who's the first person to divide humanity into five races. Yes. So that this striving for freedom and for equality uh, coincides very almost almost too neatly. Again, what novelist would come up with this? 
but 1776 is is important for both ideas, doctrines of independence, but also of racial segregation. Yes. So both of these things are part then of the of the subsequent striving. Yes, but then we keep striving against those the limits, the, the racism and the segregation. We keep trying to. It's another area where we want to expand the idea. So the, the idea of freedom keeps growing when it runs into these other uh, 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 collisions with things. And they set that dynamic in motion and, and it become very important in keeping it going. I'm not saying all this came from Africans, but they played a major role in, in enlarging it. And that's what my book is about. So, so I'd, um, I'd like to conclude with you uh, reading the last two paragraphs of the book. I, I can't think of a, a better way to end this than by you uh, reading those two paragraphs. This is the last two paragraphs of the book. Uh, is this, uh, you mean on page 749? That's right. That uh, in the United States, uh, that W.E.B. Du Bois, this is. Yeah, uh, beginning with W.E.B. Du Bois. That, uh, noted this double consciousness in the thinking of African Americans. One ever feels his two-ness. An American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body, whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn apart. Unquote. Dubois wrote that for Africans in America, slavery was indeed the sum of all villainies, the cause of all, of all sorrow, the root of all villainies. He wrote that nobody hated American slavery more than did an American slave. At the same time, uh, Dubois also observed that few men worshipped freedom with half such unquestioning faith as did the American Negro for two centuries, end quote. Uh, through the full span of American history, that deep faith in American freedom was strong in the thought and experience of American slaves and their posterity. In the face of freedom, uh, in, sorry, in the face of tyranny and oppression, the growing strength of that abiding faith in living free has been one of the greatest African contributions to America and to the world. My guest today has been David Hackett Fisher. He's most recently author of African Founders, How Enslaved People Expanded American Ideals. David Hackett Fisher, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. Enjoy our conversation. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.